And, uh, and you guys are going to need to get a little bit vocal this morning because the uh, Saturday night crowd, the 915 crowd, they were, they were into it, you know. So 1115, wake up, okay. I heard one amen, get ready with some more, right? A <laughs> couple of things I want to celebrate just coming off the afterburn of Easter and the weekend before. And we're going to start, so the, you get, get ready. We're going to cheer the work of God as a church. And just two weekends ago, Palm Sunday weekend, there weren't just a couple, there were 10 people that made the declarative change of baptism in their life that Jesus is the reason for new life power and change in them. Let's go ahead and just, yes. And then, and then, Resurrection Sunday, last weekend, for us it's Saturday night and it's Sunday, we had 2,545 people come out to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That is worth cheering for. And of, of that 2,545 in attendance, we had 41 kids who turned over their hearts to Jesus for the very first time last weekend. And we had 58, we had 58 to like 61, because some of you are a little more timid, adults who actually surrendered their life to Jesus and received his life in them last weekend. I can get pretty geeked about uh, Resurrection uh, Sunday and what it means for us in real life every single day. And I don't want to miss that church. We are not a church. I, I want you to know this about us, okay? I'm just going to declare something. We are not a church that believes that the gospel is about making bad people into better people or making kind of good people into a little bit better people. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about making dead people alive again. That is what it is about. And we will continue to push that. We're actually moving into a series called Overcomers because out of Jesus' power, out of what he did for us, out of his ability, as we're gonna see in the text today, to get into us and really in the best kind of way wreck our lives, right? That makes us overcomers. That, that, that what happened and was celebrated on Palm Sunday and Easter changes everything about our existence. So we're moving into a four-week series called Overcomer. We're actually backing up to do that. And we're going to hit the life of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs in our Genesis series. So we will be looking closely. It was Abraham, remember, and it was Isaac. John talked about, he kind of set up a couple of weekends ago, Jacob. There is a devotional, four-week devotional. It's out there in the lobby. You cannot miss it. Please, please do not think that just showing up here on a Sunday morning and sitting in rows is the sum total of your faith, faith because it is and totally will be the wrong. You, you'll get off on the wrong track if you do that. And I don't want you to do that. Grab that devotional daily. We're going to be following Jesus and seeing what it looks like to be an overcomer. Now, I've talked a lot. I, I'm good at that. I want to set something up here for just a second. I'm Ryan. For those of you who are visiting, I'm one of our pastors. It is a privilege to share the word of God with you today. And I had an experience uh, about a month ago that I've not had before. We had an event happening here and, um, and I was in line, I was about to lead sort of a cavalcade out in a processional and I was at the front with John, my bald brother, another one of our pastors here. And there was a guy way back the line, like, I don't know, 10 people deep. And he kept like, you know what I'm saying? Like peeking around the row. Now the wall's right here. So he couldn't quite touch his head to the wall, but he was peeking. It was almost like he was trying to wave at me a little bit. And I'm at the front of the line and I, you know, I'm like, that's... A it's a little weird. I don't know this person at all. And, um, and it, finally I made eye contact and he was like, and I, and I, yeah, you know, yeah, come on up. So he squeezes beside the line. He's coming up. My wife and I are in, we're visiting from Colorado. We watch every weekend online. And I just wanted to say, you are the plaid pastor and it's so good to meet you. 
going a little pastel-y with the Easter afterburn, but yes, this is plaid. And there are worse things you could call me than the plaid pastor. So I'll take that. Uh, as you will see, as I'm speaking today, there are times you could probably call me the sweaty pastor or num any number of other things. I'll take plaid pastor. So we are moving into the story of Jacob. We're getting a little bit deeper and it's early on in his story. That's something you need to connect with because there's some formative beginning inception sort of things that are happening in his life. And, and today we're going to encounter this incredible moment where there's a vision that occurs that God gives Jacob a vision. And there is, there's something very specific to the way that God shows up in our lives. Isn't, isn't this interesting that when he wants to show up, he takes note of who you are and, and what you what experiences you have had in life so that the message is so tuned in to what we need to hear. Do you know that church? His intimacy and his attention to detail in your specific situation in your life does the same thing here for Jacob. And here's the deal. And I want to bring this uh, to our attention as we get started. We become really, really, really good ladder climbers in our culture and society. Okay. If you think about it, I'm the father of a couple of middle school uh, daughters and it really begins in middle school. Society starts to whisper in our ear. High school's coming, baby girl. How do I tell you? It's hard. It's gonna be difficult. There's... There's a ladder and there's rungs on the ladder and we got to toughen up those calluses and we got to get you good at climbing that ladder. You're only in sixth grade, but you know what? You got to be ready for what's coming. So focus, work on your schoolwork. Grades are a huge deal. I, I've said these things to my, to my kids. So I, I get it. Like this is a social thing we, most of us per participate in very early. Make sure you get good grades. Uh, ascend the ladder because in just a few years, when you get into high school, those grades are going to be recorded and they're going to become something that measures you that measures your ability, that defines what you're gonna be able to achieve and accomplish. And so then you get into high school and sure enough, your guidance counselors, your teachers, your principals, everybody's like, how are you doing? Your grades, and they start to record them. And then those recorded grades begin to define where you can go to school, how high you can climb the ladder, what sort of uh, job you might pursue in the future. And as those grades are recorded and the test scores are put in, you learn to climb. And some of us are better ladder climbers than others for sure, but all of us are pulled into climbing the ladder. And then when you get to college, you, you start realizing that grades aren't enough. Maybe you were really, really good and you got great grades, but then you get to college and there's, oh no, 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 it's, okay, so it's grades and then it's networking. It's who you know, who do you know? Have you, have you got the connection with the right people? Once you get the right people and you're connected with the right people, then you get hired into the dream job you've been waiting for and you get, you know, you get your little office in a box that you walk in on the first day of work that you worked so hard and did the right internship and they sit you down in a cubicle and they point to the cubicle field of 6,000 other cubicles and they're like, this is your team and if you work super hard for the next 11 years, do you see two miles down that aisle? There's a corner office up there. <laughs> and that corner office has a door and a window, not a cubicle. And so you do because you got really good at climbing ladders. And 12 years later, you get that corner office. And then you're driving to work one day and it just strikes you that you, you're not sure what it's really all about. Like, did I really want to climb this ladder? You, you start to ask the question, what wall was that ladder even leaned up against? 
Did, did that matter? I don't think as a society we do a good job at all of asking the question or teaching our kids to ask the question, have you paid attention to where the ladder you're trying to climb actually goes? And then for, for some of us, we get so good at it, right, that we're at the top and we're asking the question when we lay our heads down to the pillow at night, is this all that there is? And then for some of the rest of us, we sucked at climbing ladders. We got about eight feet up and the thing fell out from under us and it was a colossal failure when we hit the ground. Either way, there's this mythical pull to climb ladders. That's where we find Jacob. Here's the setup. Genesis 28. John talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The first thing he does as a phenomenal ladder climber Jacob's a good ladder climber when he starts out. He's a strategic thinker. He can use that in manipulative and conniving ways. He, he wants, he's ambitious. He wants to get up that ladder. In fact, his name literally means heel grabber. Well, when we grab a heel real well and we yank, we can get over them and we can climb higher, can't we? All that ladder climbing stuff, we didn't even talk about the people we climb over and hurt when we're climbing the ladder. Jacob stole the birthright from his brother Esau and that wasn't enough. He kept going. He wanted the blessing too. These are two distinct things that were offered to the firstborn. It's Esau is Jacob's twin, if you didn't know. And they're very different people. And Jacob wanted what his brother had. And so he kept going after it. He steals the biblical blessing from Esau. And when he does, he deceives his father Isaac to achieve it. He, he longs for approval from his father. You can literally see it in these chapters right before Genesis 28. You can see him trying to achieve, trying to be what his brother is to his dad, but the only one who actually loves him is his mom. And that resonates with some of us because that's kind of how you grew up. There's this favoritism that hurts him. And when he can't get the, the love from his dad, he, he settles for the next best thing, which is admiration or approval. But he can't even get that. He has, to, he has to cheat and he has to lie to achieve that. He literally impersonates his brother and steals the blessing from his brother in this upward mobility plan that he has to take over. Here's the, here's the issue. At some point that falls apart, folks. And we know it. We know it in our lives. We see it in parts of our life where it just starts to fall apart. This is where we encounter Jacob. He's actually been sent away Right before Genesis chapter 8, verse 10, his mom has said, I heard in the, uh, the clandestine murmurings of the clan, I heard about Esau's plan. He's sick of this. As soon as Isaac dies and the season of mourning is over, he is going to kill Jacob. He's going to kill him. He's going to take it all back the way he knows best. Force. Jacob's in at risk, he's in danger. And Isaac, who never liked Jacob in the first place, he's like, well, let's get him out of here. It'll give us some sanity. And Rebecca actually is like, yeah, let's do that. For her, it was safety because she loved Jacob. But let's get him out of here. That's where we find him. Uh, verse 10 says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now we gotta, under, we gotta unpack a couple of things here to really get what's going on. He came to a certain place. In the Hebrew, that translation is this, and it's very important to the passage. It literally means a nowhere of nowheres. He is between the people in the clan that have just rejected him, kicked him out, and he's going to a new people in a clan, distant relatives, where they don't know all the story. He's going to be a burden, but he might have a chance there. He is in the middle. He is in no man's land. He is in a place, a certain place, that had absolutely no significance in the Hebrew, and it had no importance. It was the last place in the world he wanted to be. No man's land. And look at this. He also, he also is forced to stay there because on his journey, the sun is going down, which means this was unplanned. 
Like we weren't planning, he wasn't planning on stopping here, but he's gonna have to stop here. The reason for stopping here is that the sun is setting and he has no provisions for his journey, no fire, no light. I gotta stop. I gotta actually find a place to rest. This guy's destitute. He's on the run. He's penniless and he is completely alone. Now, lest we miss this, um, for those of you who are parents, do you, do you, uh, do you, do you know the times where you're, where you're coming from a, a, a trip out west, you're on a journey across the continental United States, you've got kids in the back of the fuselage, they are ready to rip each other's face off, you have been journaling or journeying for 14 hours straight. And you're just desperate to get off the road and in a room where there might be some sanity. So you're like, we got to find a hotel and find one fast. You know what I'm saying? Just me. Nobody else. Really? I don't believe that. Uh, This is a freebie. Sexy, not in my notes. Here you go. Um, It just struck me. We don't call vacations in we don't call family trips vacations in my family. We stopped doing that years ago. This might be good for you because you'll get more sanity out of it if you just call them trips. And to put this theologically, to put it theologically, trips are with the kids. They're much more like Episcopalian or Presbyterian. You know what I'm saying? They're regimented, they're scheduled, there's an itinerary. We are building memories, but mom and dad might not enjoy it that much. That's a trip. That's a Kresge trip. We might even call it an adventure. You know what I'm saying? Vacation. Again, in theological terms, vacation is when dad and mama get to go somewhere and it's a little more charismatic. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of speaking in tongues and uh, laying on of hands. That, that's vacation. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one's just a freebie for you. Enjoy your vacation if you are married. Um, trips are just going to be what they're going to be for a while, folks. That's, that's how it is. Uh, so, yeah, this is where Jacob finds himself. Like, where? What, what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm kicked out. There's, there's something you, that we need to pull from the text right here, and it's this. That in a million years, this was not where Jacob expected to be when he started climbing his ladder. And in a million years, he never would expect God to show up in this insignificant place, this unimportant moment. But that's exactly where God wants to show up and meet us. He, he doesn't even have the 10 essentials for survival. Anybody watch Alone in here? We have one person. All y'all need to watch Alone. He does not have what he needs just to survive, let alone thrive. He's had no time to build his provisions. He's stuck, no tent, no sleeping bag, no pillow. So he pulls a rock up, he curls into the fetal position and he tries to push down that feeling of panic and dread inside of him. That is, I do not think that this is a situation I wanted to be in ever. I don't know what's in front of me. I know what's behind me. I cannot go back to or there's certain death. His snap story is this, wrecked, alone, weak, and afraid. That's what he's putting on all his socials for you kids. Jacob's a nobody in the middle of nowhere with absolutely nothing to his name and no one but his mom who cares about him. I was trying to think about what this would feel like. And for me, uh, 20 plus years ago, a whole nother lifetime, when I graduated high school, I went out West and I worked as a hunting guide in Idaho and Montana. And um, I had no idea what this good Baptist boy from central Michigan farmland was actually going to find when I get out there. And I remember when I hit guide school and the colorful characters that were going to guide school with me. Oh my goodness. I wanted to run back to my Baptist home and just be like, okay, Jesus, me in, in the little huddle here with my family. It was 
It was terrifying. And then when, when, when uh, guide school was done, I got a job down in Idaho. They sent me down to Idaho in the Frank Church River of No Return out in the middle of the sticks. It is the largest wilderness area in the lower 48. And they gave me cross-cut saws, the 10 essentials, and they put me on an airplane and they flew me into the back country. And they said, for the next seven weeks, you clear every trail in a 250 square mile wilderness you might have a partner occasionally shows up to help you man I was lonely I was terrified there's wolves back there they howl I found out later they never attack people there's like two recorded in in the history of the world that they've actually attacked people but they're terrifying to listen to and you know what my mom did she, she took a cassette tape. <laughs> Who remembers cassette tapes? <laughs> Walkmans, any Walkman people in here? Yeah, okay, I'm dating myself for sure. And she took a cassette tape and she recorded the voices of my five siblings telling me they missed me and they loved me. And then the voices of my dad and her. And she sent that cross country onto an airplane and it arrived in the back country. And when I heard their voices, I went to the top of a mountain to be alone and I wept with everything in me because of that feeling of like they actually care. Jacob's in a spot in a place where he has just no construct of that. And I want you to know that God tends to show up in moments where weak and washed up. He is drawn to the brokenhearted, the insignificant, and the powerless church. He is drawn and attracted to the brokenhearted, the insignificant, and the powerless. He, when Jesus shows up on the scene, we're going to actually get to that here in just a little bit. When Jesus came and showed up, his attraction to the people who were beat up, messed up, and breathless, lifeless in their spirit. He just was attracted and drawn to them. And because of that, as followers of Jesus, we have to be as well. It's where we meet. It's where we see Jacob here. Verse 12 says, and he dreamed and behold, there was a stairway set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and behold, the Lord stood over him. This is the first encounter that Jacob has ever had, personal encounter with the Lord and the narrator of Genesis, this would have been originally told in the oral tradition. The narrator wants us to hear, behold, this word was like, Listen up, something otherworldly happened right here. Something that we have no concept for happened right here in Jacob's life. He's getting super excited. Here's one of the reasons why. A stairway to heaven. In the ancient Near East, this concept would have been well known to the people. But the kinds of stairways to heaven that they built, check these out. We still have some today. Pyramids. It's going to come up. There it is. On the outside of a pyramid, it's built so that you can ascend or there are steps on it to go up. Here's, there's another one here. Temples where you could go around and move towards the top. These ancient Near Eastern peoples would build what were called ziggurats. And they were built in prominent places, in places of greatness and importance. The Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. They were temples to the, the ancient Near Eastern gods where priests would ascend and they would worship and they would attempt to appease the gods and achieve their favor. This is what is in the mind of Jacob. This is what he thinks it is to get the favor of God. But the stairway he is seeing is totally different. Look at the second behold. And behold... 
the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. I cannot even describe how mind-blowing this would have been to Jacob and should be even today to us because not only were the angels going up, which was the effort of that day, the, the man was trying to step his way to God, but the angels were descending. They were coming down. This would have been to communicate to Jacob that God is at work. His greatness is at work behind the scenes in the places you least expect it, that he is working to bring about right relationship and goodness on the earth. Jacob literally would have been like, that's just not anywhere near what I have understood, that God does the most significant work in the most insignificant places, the, the, the most difficult moments, the most unworthy parts of life in that no man's land, that as he is sleeping with his head on a rock, curled in the fetal position, that God, look it, comes down the stairway. You're not trying to get up. Jacob, you're not even awake. You have no construct of how to, I'm gonna come down. And it says, and the narrator is just busting his, I mean, he's, he's going nuts at this point, okay? He's busting a capillary right here. The, the oral tradition around the campfire would have caused the, the children to scream out loud at this moment. And the hair on the back of the neck of the adults that are listening to Jacob's dream retold would, would literally have stood up. Like that God himself came, came back down the stairway. And it says, it, says, it says this, that the Lord stood over him. Now, what this meant was that God came and by demonstration of his position, he hovered over top of. This was, this was less than a lording over and it was a protective parent, like one who would see Jacob in his desperation and hover over top of. These are breaking paradigms for Jacob, shattering what he understands about the, the deities of the Near Eastern people at the day and time of his age, blowing his mind. God encounters us wherever we are because we cannot go to him, church. We don't have the ability. We don't have the mobility to get to God. We don't have the steps, even though we love to think we can. God gets up close and personal in this exchange because we're blinded and lonely and we need him to come up personally. We need him to get close. God hovers over us because we're unprotected in weakness and in our sorrow. In Jacob's desperation, he needed a personal encounter with God to jumpstart his own faith. See, the faith of his father Isaac wouldn't vicariously work for him through the stories of his grandpa and his dad that they had told. Quite frankly, his mom's faith is really interesting if you look into it. It's very intellectual. It does not seem to have a personal connection to God. And she is as conniving, if not more so than Jacob. So it's hypocritical to him. He's not gonna gain a right understanding of God from his parents. He needs a personal encounter. He needed that, his own. And he needs to realize that in unworthy, insignificant places, that is where God will work. And what I wanna pull and extract out of the text for us is this. Two things, you may feel like the most insignificant, unimportant, and completely discarded, washed up piece of refuge in the world. You need to know God sees you and that God will come to that place where you are and that that is where he wants to do the most significant work in your life and existence, church. Two, for us who are followers of Jesus, that sometimes the moments that we think are insignificant and don't matter and the places between the, the conversations that we're sick of and we're annoyed by and we're just tired of, those are the places sometimes that God does the most work through us to reach other people. Our version of power and where he's working is very often misconstrued. So my question, do you ever misjudge a moment that Jesus is present and is ready to do a work because it seems to you insignificant or nerve wracking or frustrating or annoying? Do you? I do. 
So let's think of a couple of them. How about with your spouse when you're tired and they aren't just worth your, they're just not worth the energy in the moment. How about with your server at a restaurant because they seem a little off and you're miffed about your steak's color? That's been me. That's why I put it here. Because I'll miss, I'll miss the spiritual world of God working because I'm mad about my steak. How about with your kids when they're at each other's throat nonstop for the sixth day in a row and it's spring break? But you're so irritated that when they start actually um, opening, opening up vulnerable places because they're fighting, you just, you're not ready to see it. You're not re- ready to step in. You're not ready to make something insignificant significant because God wants to work there. How about with your tax preparer because you hate the government <laughs> and you hate taxes and quite frankly, you hate your tax preparer <laughs> around April 15th. That tax preparer is a human being and there's something significant that you might be able to offer because of who Jesus is. What if every unimportant space we enter and every insignificant moment we draw breath and every unworthy thought we think could actually be turned? What if it could be turned as an opportunity to encounter Jesus' power and restoration again? What if? This is a large part of what God wants to say where he puts a ladder, he puts a stairway down into an insignificant place. Most theologians think that this stairway literally took up the sky, it was so large. Not some itty bitty little runged ladder, but like a massive heaven is open and I am working and you, Jacob, need to see that I want to encounter you. And then he speaks. And then he talks to Jacob. He says, and behold, the Lord stood over him and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. If you study this, God is actually talking about the church here. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed through the church. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is spectacular news. It's extraordinary news. It's a promise for us that passes down the ages to you and I today. And look at the key in all of it is I am with you and will keep you. All the stuff, all the possessions, all the material, that's really not the point that God is trying to convey. The point is, I am with you, Jacob. I want relationship with you. I want you to know I'm here. I want you to know I love you. I want to be in right relationship. I'm going back to Adam and and Eve in Eden when things got shattered. And I'm telling you through you and through generations after you, I am going to work to continue to redeem this relationship so we can be together. I am with you, he says. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep And he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And without being too brutal on Jacob, I just want you to know he utterly misses the point here. (laughs) Terribly. But not on the surface. On the surface, he sort of kind of gets it. He, He... He catches when there's something going on here. In fact, 
This should be, a lot of you husbands should be nodding. Like, oh yeah, I get that. Where you sort of get the surface thing, but there's something underneath that that's a lot deeper. And every time that I argue with my spouse, that's what I experience. I got the surface, missed the underneath, that's a problem. That's what's going on with Jacob. It's a partial understanding, but nowhere near a full understanding. In fact, he's grasping the first part of a multi-tiered love letter. Does that make sense? That, that he's got just a, just a bit, but not all of it. It wasn't, here's the deal. It wasn't about the place at all. Surely God was in this place. Yes, he was, but it wasn't about the place, Jacob. It was about the way. It was about Jesus. It was about God making the way. It wasn't about the location. It was about the interaction with Jesus, with him, that preposition. It wasn't about the steps. It was about the person who is the stairway for us. And boy, is that important for us to grasp, church. It is so easy, even, at, even when you're part of a church and you're, and you're participating and moving so quickly, we, because we're great ladder climbers, we turn our faith into us taking steps toward heaven, right? That, that somehow the stairway means we're supposed to carry ourselves up the steps. And the reality is just not that. That's other world religions. I mean, in Buddhism, you've got the eight steps to enlightenment. In Islam, you've got the five steps to, to purity. Like there's, there's all sorts of religions that talk about what we do, what Jesus is saying, what God is showing up to say right here is it's about the person who can make it possible to live like me, for me to get into and to change you. And I think Jacob makes a mistake that many of us make in that he, he turned it into knowledge or what I know instead of God's presence. He's got an awareness of the gate into heaven now, but he's not thinking about the fact that Jesus is the gate to heaven, that Jesus is the way. And here's what we take from that, that knowledge is no good, church. Intellectual understanding about God is not going to get you up some sort of staircase. It's, it's important to have the knowledge, but it is not in and of itself enough. In the, in the Protestant church, we often make this mistake. We think there's a formula and we go something like this, that, that the information about God with a little bit of inspiration and a lot of willpower equals I'm a follower of Jesus. You know what that's missing? It's myth, missing an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit getting inside of us. We will not be able to be all that God has called us to be or in relationship with him if we miss the experience of God himself, the relationship with God. First Corinthians 8, 1 through 3 says it very clearly. Paul says this, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Listen to this, but whoever loves God is known by God. That's an encounter, church. That's not some formulaic information plus willpower makes me, no. That's encounter. And so Jacob, the, the end here, and we're, we're actually not gonna move any further forward. We're gonna skip forward into the New Testament to understand what this is calling us into. Jacob actually misses it in this moment. If you read forward three chapters, four chapters, he wrestles with God. And when he wrestles with God, that is when he actually comes to a personal relationship with the Lord. But right here, he messes up. And here's what he does. He dismisses God's unconditional offer by responding conditionally. He, he literally throws together this haphazard um, altar. He takes the stone as if the stone had some sort of significance. He moves it over. He, do, he do, dumps some oil on it. And he, he's like, there, it's a place to, uh, you know, worship to God. And there was, you know, and this is a holy place. And he's literally distracted. Even in this moment, he's distracted with what's next. And when he does that, he, um, he then makes a declaration back to that amazing promise of God. And this is so human. 
So don't miss it. His response to God's unconditional offer is literally an if-then condition. He says to God, if you will do all those things, then we can be cool. If you will do all those things, then maybe there's some room in my life for you. If you will do all those things. And he focuses on the possessions. He says, I'll give you 10% of all the possessions that you gave me. The, the point of the last part you can read on is don't be like Jacob. Really, truly. Like in this encounter that God is offering so badly missed. Now, God's grace is for us. And we are so fortunate he did not give up on Jacob. He keeps wrestling. He keeps fighting for Jacob. And he gets him. He wrestles him down quite literally four chapters later. We're gonna move here though, because this story, as awesome as this story is, it does not get any more playtime anywhere in the Bible except John chapter one, verse 51. So we're gonna skip through the Old Testament into the gospel of John chapter one, verse 51. Here's what's going on. Jesus is calling his disciples, right? He is, um, he's, he's drawing them to himself. He's met a guy named Philip and he's talked with Philip and Philip is like, wow. And there's a rec literally recruiting going on. And, and um, he's impressed with Jesus to the point, even early on of saying, you are the Messiah. Like Philip believes early. So you, you're, a, you're Jesus. You're, you're the son of God. You're the savior of the world. And Philip becomes the one who goes and connects with this guy named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is like an intellectual. Nathaniel is this guy who's got like, he's, he's sitting under a fig tree and he's meditating. Okay. And we get, we, we see this story for the setup of this thing that Jesus says in, uh, in this first chapter of John. And it works out something like this. After Philip calls Nathaniel to come see Jesus, there's this moment where Jesus is waiting and, and Nathaniel is kind of walking towards him. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Like he declares something about the constitution of Nathaniel that was pretty unique to Nathaniel. This guy's a guy of integrity, but we've never met before. And Nathaniel kind of turns and he cocks his head a little bit and he's like, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, my friends all know that. They all know I'm a pretty good guy. And so Jesus I just imagine the smile on his face. He says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree when you were all by yourself, completely alone, and you don't want anybody to know what you were doing. I saw you. You didn't know I was there, but I saw you. Literally, the story doesn't even tell us what was going on. We don't know. We just know that Nathaniel was like, And Nathaniel actually believes. And he says to him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says this in response to that. Look at verse, it's, it's the 51st verse. He says, and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, Nathaniel, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's why this is significant. Because Jesus is referencing all the way back to this story in Genesis 28. And he is telling us with crystal clarity that it is he who is the staircase. That it's not steps we can pull off. It's not some, you know, eight ha happy hops to heaven. No, no. 
I and relationally, I am the only one who can do this. I am actually going to go and I am going to die and I am going to raise from the dead. And upon my resurrection, you will have life in relationship with me. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And that because of my work, I literally split the temple curtain from top to bottom. Because not only can you come in, but God gets out into the world. Okay. This way he's telling them. But Nathaniel and Philip and these disciples, guys, they're just like us. They're dull. It takes some time for them to figure it out. It actually takes about three and a half years. And we're going to move forward to the 20th chapter of John. Okay. After the resurrection, this is where we're going to conclude today. What's happening here is that even after Jesus is crucified and everything he told the guys comes true and he's raised Peter and John who are sort of the ringleaders of these 12. They are, um, they, they, they led them, you, you would hope that they would like lead them to go out and begin telling people about Jesus. But instead they have, they have collected the disciples together and they have hidden themselves away in a room and they are terrified, they are alone, they are destitute, they are penniless, they are scared and they do not know what to do next, all right? They actually go, John thinks it's a really big deal in his gospel to say, but it was Peter and it was me and we took off running because we heard from Mary that the tomb was empty. So we took off running and we ran to the tomb and I need you guys to know that I I beat Peter to the tomb. I was faster. <laughs> Peter might have been like the disciple that was going to lead everything. And he was the boisterous one. He was the loud one. But I was the fastest one to the tomb. And oh, by the way, when I got to the tomb, I had the good Jewish respect to stay at the entrance of the tomb. I didn't bust in. But Peter, even though he got here after me because I beat him, he just flew right by me and went inside. And they see together, they see that the tomb is empty, but they go back. See? They need something. They need something for power, church. Because right now they don't have it. After three and a half years, huddled, terrified, wetting themselves in the upper room. And I, sometimes I think Jesus is like, oh, he's not getting it. And so he comes, literally. He comes to the locked door. He knows they're in there. He's resurrected. He doesn't knock. You know why I think he didn't knock? Because he would have sent them running through the back wall of the place. He doesn't knock. He comes to the door and he just poof, whoop, right into the room, like straight through the wall. And I'm, their response They're scared. Look at, look at, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, look, I don't think, the Bible sometimes gives us the facts, but it understates things. I don't think he was like, peace be with you. You know, like Darth Vader style. I do not believe that that's what's going on here. What's happening right here is like, peace be with you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, 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 guys. John, peace be with you is a Greek translation for go change your britches because I know you just peed yourself a little bit. Peter, put the knife away, dude. You're just going to hurt somebody else with it. You don't need to keep pulling that thing out. Peace be with you. I'm here for a very, very specific purpose in this moment. And look, look what happens. Look what happens. He said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, right? They were terrified. Now they're glad. They really believe this is Jesus resurrected. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Now look, we miss this. We miss this breath a lot less these days after COVID. I've noticed people notice this a lot more after COVID. 
But the reality is we don't pay attention to the breath of life that is happening right here and right now. And, and it doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us detail as to like exactly how it went down. And I was trying to think through like, what would this have been like? And, and I don't think like that he grabbed all the disciples and said, hey guys, crowd up like we're taking a picture, one of these upper room pictures. Nope. And I'm gonna zoom a blow on you like some sort of, you know, birthday cake. <laughs> That, that, that is not what, what is happening right here. What's happening right here is that Jesus lines them up individually, I think. And he connects with each one of them to breathe one-on-one, face-to-face, like he first create, created Adam in the garden. Do you remember? The word for breath here is ruah, which is breath of life or the spirit of God, that he is going to breathe his spirit into them and bring them back to life. He said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It is as if he is saying, church, for you to actually be the church that I am calling you to be, to be sent out and to give the gospel wherever you go, to grow the fruits of the spirit in your life and to feed people off of your gentleness and to feed people off of your kindness and to have the kind of self-control that you can't conjure up. You need an encounter with the breath of life, just like in the Garden of Eden when God brought together the earth or Adam and formed and shaped humanity and wrapped his mouth around Adam's nostrils and breathed the ruah of life. He's doing that again with his disciples as the resurrected Lord to say, just as I am the father are one, you and I are one. Church, here's the amazing part. It's not just with Jesus. It's not just on Jesus. It is Jesus getting in us inside of us in a supernatural way that is spectacular and changes and transforms us to our core. That same power, the same lineup. If you are a disciple of Jesus, regular encounters with him will change your very existence and he offers it to us. I just pray today in just a few minutes when we, when we end, I pray that you go out of here with a compulsion in you to remove the distractions, to remove the things that you have discarded or have called too insignificant or unimportant, that you have missed that Jesus wants to encounter and breathe the breath of life, the ruah of his Holy Spirit over those things. We miss it. We, we ignore the power that God gives us. In fact, in Acts 1.8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So God, I just ask right now that whatever the day was gonna be today, whatever the plans we had, wherever we were going, whatever we were gonna do, that we do not miss you. That we do not go about our business ignoring the power of your Holy Spirit and your breath of life that gets inside of us and changes us. God, help us to be thankful for that. Help us to want more of that. Help us to structure our daily life in such a way that we encounter you over and over. And when you breathe yourself out and into us, that we take that breath, that we draw it into ourselves so that we can then go around breathing your spirit on the world around us. Help us. Make us ready for these encounters. Help us to anticipate them.
with delight to be ready to taste them, to taste you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for how alive, powerful your word is. Thank you for going the distance and for changing us. I pray all these things in your name. We give you ourselves again. Jesus, amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.